0: I'd like the rest of you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 14. I realized in uh, the first hour this morning, sometimes uh, preaching is a little bit of an experiment. <laughs> and I realized in the first hour this morning that I had spent an awful lot of time on the first point trying to develop that and... Um, I'm not going to spend quite as much time this time around, but let me encourage you to, to do some things for me, okay? Um, how many of you are really interested in this series of messages? Can I see your hands? Okay, good. There's, some of you are still asleep, because you, you never would have left your hand down in any... <laughs> but anyway, okay, I'm going to assume you're interested enough that you're going to go home and also do some reading, and you're going to do some thinking, and you're going to do some studying. And I really uh, want to encourage you to do that and, and go home and read some of these passages that I give you this morning. Because if I take the time to go through all of them today, um, again, it's going to take a little too long. And I want to really get to the heart of what I want to say and not spend so much time on uh, the, the development of the background. The other thing that I want to say that is really, really on my heart, there's, there's two things. They're, they're in the same category. But there's two things that are really on my heart about this series of messages. Number one, I want people in the church to learn to love each other without condemning and judging one another. I really want to see that happen. I want to see the body of Christ rejoicing together in the Lord. I want to see the super strong uh, being careful around the super weak. I I want to see people being sensitive to one another, encouraging one another. I want to see the weak grow up in Jesus and become strong in faith and trust Him for their holiness and, and their godliness and all of those kinds of things. I want to see that happen in the church where we come together and celebrate joy and rejoicing. The second thing is kind of like that. I want to make sure that we in the church are not a stumbling block to people in the world for any other reason than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross itself is a stumbling block. When you tell people that unless they repent of their sin and turn from their self-effort and turn to Jesus Christ alone and His shed blood on the cross for their salvation, that is a stumbling block. But that should be the only stumbling block we put in an unbeliever's way. I want to be sure that we're not a church that are so sanctimonious in our self-righteousness that people who come in off the street feel awkward and embarrassed and out of touch and, and, and we don't know how to receive them because they look different or they act different or they do things that we don't do and they feel awkward around us because we have confused our following of Jesus Christ with our Christian culture. And that we grow beyond that. I'm really concerned about those things. That's what's motivating me in this passage. And Romans chapter 14 and the first part of 15 are all about building that kind of unity and that kind of passion for one another in Jesus Christ so that we're not putting stumbling blocks in each other's way, but we're also not judging one another and condemning one another or variances of, of opinions and attitudes concerning how to live the Christian life. Now, having said that, let me say that in this passage written 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul addressed three topics, whether they were the only three or simply three examples He addressed three topics that were causing division and frustration in the church in Rome. Between two camps, those who were Gentile converts who had no history of Jewish background and as a consequence were unencumbered by Jewish culture and the law and tradition. Those of you that saw Fiddler on the Roof, you know um that song tradition you know jews are all about tradition but the gentiles had no no benefit of that and so they came into the church just kind of like pristine like free like no no hang ups no background they just fell in love with jesus and they started growing with him and 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 they didn't have all of this other stuff But there were Jewish believers who had a whole history of tradition in their family from their their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents all the way back to Moses. And those people had strong convictions. And Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He came first to the Jews. It was out of Judaism that Christianity was born because Jesus came as a Jew to the Jewish people. And so as far as they were concerned, Jesus was the topping on the cake of a solid foundation of a good religion. And as far as they were concerned, yes, you needed to put your faith and trust in Jesus, but you couldn't forget 1,500 years of faith history. You had to follow the rules. And they felt strongly about that. And these two camps were struggling. And the three things that Paul selects to talk about in the church at Rome center around the issues dividing these two groups. One of them was meat and drink, sacrificed to idols. And the other one was maintaining and observing Sabbath days and holy days. And you find this in Romans 14, for example, in verse 2, It says, one man has faith that he can eat anything, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that in the marketplace, if a a meat was sacrificed to an idol, a Jew would not eat it. Because as far as he was concerned, that was an offense with respect to God. And he did not want to offend God. And since they could not be sure how the meat was prepared or how it was slaughtered or how it was brought to market or how it had been sacrificed and it was the practice of the day to first of all sacrifice the meat, sacrifice the animal to to a god and then bring the meat to market. They just assumed that since they couldn't be sure, they would not eat any meat at all. That was their solution. If it offends God to eat meat, sacrificed to an idol, and I can't be sure that that meat wasn't, I'm just not going to eat any meat. And likewise, they were concerned that if they bought wine that had been poured out, at least part of it, as a libation offering for the fruit of the grapes, and that had been sacrificed to an idol, before it was brought to market, they would not drink wine. That was it. It's interesting For those of you that are very concerned about this issue, that the problem with the wine was not that it contained alcohol, but that it was sacrificed to an idol. That was the issue. These two things had that similar common thread in them. And the Jew would not eat that because they could not be absolutely positive that the the meat or the wine had not been sacrificed. If they didn't have a way to, to raise it or harvest it themselves or produce it themselves, They just simply didn't eat it. The Gentiles had no problem. (laughs) They said, it's a bunch of dumb idols. They don't mean anything. They never, that we know that Jesus is the only true God and we follow the Lord of Heaven and we're not interested in what happened to that stuff before, but that's good food. I'm not going to let that go to waste. That was their mentality. The other thing that caused the consternation was the Sabbath day issue. Not just the Sabbath, but the holy days, holidays, special days. And again, the Gentile believers didn't have a background here. But you may have a background. You you yourselves may have a background in your own tradition where you have come up, you know, Christmas means this to me. Easter means this to me. Thanksgiving means this to me. And then some clown comes along and says none of it means anything. And you say, that's the birth of Jesus. That's the resurrection of Jesus. What's wrong with you? He said, no, no, no. That's that goddess Ishtar stuff. And all those bunnies and eggs, what's that got to do with Jesus? And Christmas and those Christmas trees, That's pagan stuff, that's got nothing to do with anything. And now, all of a sudden, we're kind of back into that. And, and Paul said, look, some people think very highly of these holidays, and they value them, and they believe that we have to follow them to a T. And others of you have no such traditions, but he says you've got to stop fighting over it. Now, one of the things that I want us to understand before we move in, because my my goal this morning is to move into the areas of how does what Paul said to the Roman Christians 2,000 years ago apply to us? What is our meat and drink and Sabbath observances? What are the issues that divide followers of Jesus Christ today? Because that's where we really need to make the application. But as we move to understand that, one of the things I want us to realize that comes right out of the Scripture is that what these Jewish believers were saying was not something they pulled out of thin air. You can write these passages down; just make a note and take them home, look them up. Exodus thirty-four, twelve to seventeen. In Exodus thirty-four, verses twelve to seventeen. God says through Moses, it's very interesting, He says, when you come into the land of Palestine, that I've promised you, I want you to tear down the idols, I want you to tear down the Asherim, I want you to tear down the temples of worship of these of these pagan people. I want you to be careful not to eat any blood that's strangled, or any blood that's in any animal. I don't want you to eat anything strangled. And I don't want you to go to their houses "...if they invite you to dinner and eat their meat and drink that has been sacrificed to idols, lest you also take on their habits and become like them, and turn away from the Lord your God and intermarry with pagan people and adopt their customs." And throughout the Old Testament, many places in Leviticus, Leviticus 3.17 for example... Do not eat any meat with the fat on it or with the blood in it. Leviticus 17.10 Any person who eats blood in the animal will be cut off from my people, says the Lord. So Jewish believers who felt that they could not eat meat or drink sacrificed to idols had an Old Testament basis for that feeling. They had Old Testament law for it. But furthermore, if you want to take that a step further, they had New Testament law for it. How so? In Acts chapter 15, verses 19 to 21, again, you can go home and read this, but in Acts 15, verses 19 to 21, the Apostle Paul has been summoned to Jerusalem... because of all the Gentile churches that have come to faith, that have been born out of people turning to faith in Christ from the Gentiles. And there are Jews in Jerusalem, Jewish leaders, who want them to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. In other words, they're saying, look, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He has completed the law. They must believe in Jesus and keep the law. We can't have these people messing up the law of Moses. They've got to follow the whole program. They need to be circumcised, and they need to follow the law. And so they had this council in Jerusalem to settle the issue. And the Judaizers, as they came to be known, they presented their claims, their arguments. Circumcision, the law, and Jesus. And, and Peter got up and said, wait a minute. When I went to Cornelia's household, God clearly made no distinction between them and us. They weren't circumcised. They weren't law keepers. But he gave them the spirit the same as he gave us the spirit. We can't go there. We can't. He says, we couldn't even keep these rules, guys. What's wrong with you? We can't export them to the Gentiles. And so James stood up in their midst. And James says this, and this is very significant. It is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now here was the solution of the Council of Jerusalem. We're not going to have them be circumcised. We're not going to have them keep the law. But we are going to ask them to do four things. We want them to abstain from fornication. We want them to abstain from things contaminated by idols. Does that sound familiar? food and drink, sacrificed idols. We want them to abstain. We want them to abstain from what is strangled and from blood because animals that are strangled rather than their throats slit and hung upside down, if you strangle them, they still have the blood in them. And uh, that nice juicy steak that you like so well, you know, is taboo. You've got to drain all that stuff out of it. And so we, we want them to abstain from blood. Why would James this, And even more importantly, why would Paul go along with it when he's saying in Romans, the strong in faith don't pay any attention to this? Let me give you some insight here. First of all, it was strong Jewish culture based on Old Testament law. And from the Jewish standpoint they were just as much in a pagan Palestine with the Romans as their forefathers were in the land of Canaan. And, if you really wanted to offend a Jew, if you really wanted to offend a Jew, offer them something that was contaminated with idolatry, or that had the blood in it. There there was almost nothing you could do worse than that to upset them. And so, the council of Jerusalem, with Paul present, said, we're going to ask Gentile believers to abstain from things contaminated by idols. Notice the reason. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. It was in order to be sensitive to Jews and not to drive them away from Christ. But when the council in Jerusalem met, which was approximately 15 or so years after the birth of the church, it was another 10 to 15 years before Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And in that additional decade to decade and a half, the maturity in the church was continuing. The Jews were taking more of a back seat because they were not turning to Christ in faith. Jewish evangelism had largely been accomplished. And the church was turning to be a Gentile church and it was time to grow up. And by the time Paul wrote to the Romans, the advice from the book of Acts was now passe. It was no longer a crucial cultural issue. And that's what it had always been. Not a spiritual issue, but a cultural issue. And so Paul writes to the Romans and he says, You don't have to do this stuff anymore. You don't have to worry about this idol stuff. We know that idols mean nothing. And we know that meat sacrificed to them is not contaminated. But we need to still be sensitive, but not overly much. The goal is to grow up in Jesus and to trust Him for our holiness not the external requirements. But the main point out of this that I really want you to see is if you were a Jewish Christian who were convinced that you could not eat meat sacrificed to idols, you could not only call up an Old Testament verse to support it, but you could refer to the council of Jerusalem with the leading elder of the mother church and say, look, even after Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, I have sound basis for my conviction. Without understanding, what the Apostle Paul grasped was that the church was in a process of maturing, and that the gospel of grace did indeed negate the law. But, as he pointed out, we still need to be sensitive cross-culturally. And frankly, today, we still need to be sensitive cross-culturally. You would not go to a Muslim nation to evangelize Muslims and invite them to your house for a pork roast. If you didn't get beheaded on the spot, they would probably throw you out of the country. It's just stupid. You know you can eat pork. But they don't know that. And you wouldn't do it. Not because it's sin, but because it's offensive. And you don't want to destroy with your meat the person for whom Christ died. Just in cross-cultural evangelism. But we need to understand, for those of us who have the full expression of the gospel, we need to grow up in Christ. We need to recognize why those things are there and why they've changed in order to intelligently appropriate spiritual truth. Now, relating that to today... And by the way, next week, I put Roman numeral 3 down at the bottom of your outline, How to Discern the Difference Between Moral Absolutes and Matters of Opinion, coming next week. I really wanted to talk about this today, but I realized I already had way too much sermon. And by the time I finished point number 3, I had more than I've got here. So, (laughs) we would have been here all day. Uh, Yeah, but my wife comes in at 1 o'clock at O'Hare today, and she's going to... She's going to want me to pick her up, so I'm going to have to be there. But anyway, you've heard the saying, give a man a fish and you can feed him today, teach him how to fish, and he can eat for a lifetime. All right, today I'm going to hand you a few fish. Next week, I'm going to show you how to fish. Because I cannot cover in any sermon all the possibilities and contingencies, but I want to give you some principles next week that will help you evaluate anything you encounter and, and evaluate it before God and say, is this right or wrong? I don't have a specific verse in the Bible about it, so what should I do? Next week, I'm going to explain that. Today, I'm going to just talk about some of the modern-day meat, drink, and Sabbath that Christians fuss and fume about. The second disclaimer that I want to give before we get into those is, I said this at the end of the first service, but I'm going to say it at the beginning of this one. If you are a young person, the children have already gone, but it applies to them, but they're not hearing me. This is a PG-13 message anyway. But if you're a young person and you're living at home under the authority of your parents, there's only one rule you need to remember. Children obey your parents. End of story. That's it. That's all you need to know. So don't go home this afternoon and say, but pastor said, I don't want, to, I don't want that coming back to me. Pastor said, if you're eating at your parents' table and you're living in their house and, and you're you know, still under their authority, your message is, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And uh, that's that's the, the message. The other thing is, some things are relative in terms of the Scripture, but they're absolute in terms of the laws of the land. You won't find stop signs in the Bible, but that doesn't mean you can ignore them. The Bible doesn't have any octagonal red things with stop written on it, but you still have to follow it. And you have to follow all the other laws of the land as well, Under God. We talked about that in Romans chapter 13. But having said that. What are some of the areas that Christians get hung up on today. That are purely matters of opinion. When I really got serious about following Jesus Christ. I was about 16, 17 years old. And I made that intelligent adult mind commitment. I had received Jesus as my Savior when I was seven, and basically grew up in the church until I got to be in late junior high, early high school, and that's when I just my dad was sick and things were happening, and then God and I had a falling out. And then when I was about 17, I had a mature encounter with Jesus Christ where I, with full understanding, acknowledged Him as the Lord of my life and purposed to follow Him all the rest of my days. It wasn't long after that, in my pursuit of God, which started out with a hunger and a thirst after the Lord, that I was introduced to ways and means of growing in Christ. And those ways and means included um, when and how to read my Bible, when and how to pray. The fact that I should be memorizing Scripture. And all of those kinds of things that went along with spiritual disciplines. And and I got them from all directions. And being diligent and passionate about the Lord, I tried to follow all the advice I got. You know? and And, um, and I go overboard with a lot of things. And... I started hearing so many things. There was a time in my life when I was trying to do them all. For example, I heard if you read four chapters in the Bible a day, you'd read the whole Bible in a year. And what you could do is you could read uh, one from the New Testament, two from the Old Testament, and a psalm or proverb, and you could read the whole Bible in a year. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. I'll do that. And then I learned that Watchman Nee read through his New Testament every month. And he read through the Old Testament once a year. So I thought, well, I'll do the four chapters in the morning. And then I'll do the chapters in the New Testament at lunchtime, midday. And that way I'll be getting the overview once a year. And I'll be getting the 12 times a year in the New Testament. And I'll be getting this other stuff going on. And and then I was memorizing... But I had heard that you needed to memorize two verses of Scripture a week. The Navigators taught that with a topical memory system. But I thought, well, that's for ordinary people. So I can I can memorize between four and ten a week. And so I started in to memorize the script. And I carried the little verses. I still got them in my desk drawer back there. The little verses. I bought the blank ones so I could write my own. And I started not my own Bible, my own verses from, from the Bible. <laughs> just want to make that clear. So I started memorizing all the verses. And then it was, you've got to have a prayer list. And this is where I really ran to ground. Because I started developing a prayer list. And who goes on your prayer list? Well, all the pastors you know, all the missionaries you meet, all your friends, all your family, all the people you work with, all the people you know that are lost. And, and every time another missionary would come to chapel, I'd write their name down. And eventually, I'm not kidding you people. If you think I'm just telling a story here, I'm flat dead serious. This is how I went about growing in Christ. By the time I was two or three years old in the Lord, I had a prayer list that was so long that if all I did was say, God bless Marge, God bless Patsy, Lord be with Neray, Lord bless Mark, God help Ron. If that's all I did, I couldn't get through it in an hour. And it finally dawned on me that this wasn't working. And furthermore, I could not have any kind of meaningful intercession for people in this long list. I didn't have time to stop and actually think about them. All I could do is say their word, you know, their name, with God bless them. And then, the devil entered the game. And and I began to feel like, well, if you leave that person out, they're going to they're be in deepest, darkest Africa today and fall off the cliff and have an accident, and it's your fault. You didn't pray for them. I did realize the bondage that I was into eventually. And I kind of woke up to the fact that Satan was more in charge of my quiet time than God was. And that I was being driven here. But it made me step back and take a look at this whole thing. There are all kinds of people out there that will tell you how to read your Bible. They'll tell you how to pray. They'll tell you to to use the Acts method of prayer. You know what the Acts method is? Four sections. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So you start by praise, then you confess your sins, then you give thanks, now you ask for stuff. Apply that to the Lord's Prayer where you start out asking for stuff before you start out confessing, or before you confess, you'll very soon realize that in the model prayer that Jesus gave, it doesn't follow the Acts formula. Because it's just made up. In fact, any formula, name me a formula for prayer, I can find you a prayer in the Bible that doesn't fit it. Because you can't give people a formula for prayer. How many of you Make up a formula when you go to have coffee with a friend. Now, some, some of you here do. I know it. Don't raise your hand, okay? This is not the time to admit that. Some of you have an agenda. I know you do. But the the issue is prayer is conversation with God. Speak to Him the way Moses did. As a man speaks to his friend or a woman speaks to her friend. Speak to God like a friend. There's not a formula, but people make up formulas. Be careful on this one, okay? Someone this morning at 8 o'clock had an answer right ready. They said 90%. Here's my question. How many New Testament Christians in the first century do you think read their Bibles every day? How many of you think 25%? (laughs) You're too smart. I've already set you up. You already know this. They didn't have any Bibles. They had no Bibles. The scrolls of the Old Testament were handwritten by scribes, and if a synagogue could have one, it was privileged. But people didn't own them, and the New Testament wasn't even collected into a whole collection for a couple of hundred years. You couldn't go to the local Christian bookstore and buy a Bible. So you couldn't read it every day because no one had it. How did they study the Scriptures? They went to the assembly. They heard it read. Somebody got up on Sunday and read the letters of Paul. Or they read the Old Testament Scriptures and they listened and they talked about it and they memorized it and they learned it. And that's all they had to go by. They didn't have a Bible to read. So don't let anyone tell you that unless you read a certain number of verses a day, you're not spiritual. Because no one in the New Testament could have qualified. Do you see where I'm going with this? We make up these rules and regulations about spiritual disciplines and we want people to believe unless you do this, you're not spiritual. When in fact, all of it is made up. Should you be in the word of God on a regular basis? How many of you would agree with that? You are still awake. Thank you. Yes, you should. Should you have conversations with God on a regular daily basis? Yes, you should. Should you commit the word of God to your heart and mind so that it's ready in your heart and mind as a guide to you? Yes, you should. Should you attend places of worship and gather with the saints and Celebrate the life of Jesus Christ. Yes, you should. Don't forget the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Don't forget to do that. But how you should do it and when you should do it and whether it's the first thing in the morning or after you've had your shower or on your commute to work or in the evening, that is between you and God. These matters are matters that you have to work out. Don't let people get you hung up in a yoke of slavery over growing in Christ. And if you're in the church, my friends, and all of you are, you fit that description. Don't pass judgment on someone else because they go about it a different way. And if you see a person who has no interest in the word and they're not praying and they're not and you don't have any evidence that that pray for them. Pray for them. Encourage them, but don't try to tell them how it has to be done. And when we do come across methods, it's all right if a if a Bible study group, for example, says, "You know what? We're going to study this uh, particular thing." And like a couple years ago, we asked a lot of a lot of you, everyone that wanted one, to, want to buy a Bible through the Bible in one year, chronology Bible. That's fine, but that's your choice. Do you want to do that? Do it. It's a good thing. And I and I will tell you without hesitation, I'm glad for all that Scripture I memorized. I'm glad for all that Bible reading I did. I wish I hadn't felt guilty about so much of it. That was the downer. But I am grateful that it's built into my life. I love Awana. I love Bible quizzing. I love any convention that builds the Scriptures into the life of the child. And if you can make it fun and you can make it exciting and and provide some enthusiasm, that's even better. But let's be careful what we export. I mentioned tithing in here in music genres. We could go on and on and on. but, But just the subject of tithing, that's an amazing topic. Should you tithe? Don't raise your hands. Just think about it. Should you tithe? How much should you tithe? How much should you tithe on? What is a tithe? Is a tithe 10%? Go back and read the Old Testament closely. The word means tenth, but go back and read how they were supposed to tithe. Furthermore, do you tithe today on your take-home pay or your gross pay? I've had this discussion with people in this room. I know there's a difference of opinion right here this morning. I know it for a fact, because I've talked to you. Do you tithe on the, the net or the gross? Some people say, all I get's what I take home. Yeah, but who do you think's paying Uncle Sam? If it wasn't withheld, you'd have to pay it. Didn't you earn that? Well, yeah, I guess. Well, okay, how about your benefits? Does a person who has to pay for their health insurance out of their take-home pay tithe on their health insurance just because... You get yours provided by your company? How does that work? Isn't that part of your compensation? How do you figure that out? And then if you, if you don't want to just spend time on working out those three possibilities, I had a professor of New Testament when I was in college who insisted that the tithe was purely Old Testament law and had nothing to do with the New Testament, that it did not apply. In fact, in the New Testament, he said it's the law of love and the fact that 100% of what I have belongs to God. And here was his conviction, so you tell me if you want Old Testament law or New Testament. His conviction was, God has given me a certain amount of resources. I am only supposed to keep what I need and give everything else away because it all belongs to God. So he felt that for a Christian... In the law of love, according to the spirit of the New Testament, you should be giving 20, 30, 40, 50% of your income away because you you only need to keep what you need. So who's right? You can argue all the points. The point is, to his own mastery stands or falls, let a person work it out with God. It's their issue. How about music genre? I was in a group of pastors not too long ago, and one of them had attended a Southern Gospel concert at one of the churches in the area up in Gurney, I believe. Very popular Southern Gospel group. And someone said, how'd you like the such and such group? (laughs) He just shook his head and he said, oh my goodness. He said, I had to leave at intermission. I could not listen to another sickly, sweet, sappy song that had no biblical foundation whatsoever. Southern gospel, I thought, well now there's a trip for you. You know, and then I then I happened to have that group on a CD so I listened to some of their music with a new new ear. And you know what? It's sickly sweet, sappy stuff that has no biblical foundation, but it does have a nice beat to it for those of us that grew up in southern gospel. It's amazing I listened to a a CD the other evening in our small group about Jesus, and that's weird. I just spilled my water in my shoe. (laughs) That's very strange. I wondered why my foot was getting cold. See, I did. (laughs) My back's healed, by the way, or I couldn't have done that. But whether you like drums and guitar and keyboard, whether you like the hymns of the church, whether you like southern gospel or bluegrass Jesus, it doesn't matter. There is no ungodly... Well, let me take that back. There is some ungodly music, but you've never heard it in this church. It is entirely possible to get music that is so a diabolic coming out of demon worship and new age stuff that you can get off the track into a music that has a spirit about it. But we're not there. And musical genre is a matter of preference. We need to be careful about judging each other. Well, I'm getting stuck here because I want to finish in about ten minutes. Matters related to vice and excess. Alcohol, tobacco, gambling. Next week I'm going to talk about how to get into these kinds of things and find out more about them. But let me say here briefly, tobacco and gambling are not mentioned in the Scripture as such. So we can't have a rule about them because they're not mentioned. That's something between you and God. Tobacco, I mean alcohol is not mentioned in terms of prohibition. The Bible plainly teaches temperance. It says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk. And so when alcohol is now influencing you and controlling you, now you've gone beyond the spirit of the scriptures because you're not supposed to be under the control of anyone but the Holy Spirit. And if you have drank so much that you've lost your inhibitions, which is another way of saying your good common sense and morality, then you've had too much to drink. For some people, that's one drink. I don't know how it happens, but some people get there very quickly. And for others, it may be a whole lot more. But the issue of the Scripture is temperance. You're not to be out of control under any circumstance. I can't go into the details here, but suffice it to say that state law has established a limit that you shouldn't operate a motor vehicle. And that only makes good sense. We're not living in the first century. If you got stinking, fallen down drunk in the New Testament era, your donkey had more sense than you did. He was not going to run out in front of something else. Okay? But... When you're in charge and you're stupid, drunk, you, you, you can make some pretty serious mistakes. So we have other laws that, that affect that. But the Bible teaches temperance. We can't make a rule about alcohol. Books, magazines, music, movies, and entertainment. What should you watch? And I'm not talking about porn here. I, I think you know that. I mean you don't have to have but an ounce of common sense and be about 2 days old in Jesus to know that that porn is just the Holy Spirit's not going to going to give you the okay there. But what about books? What about movies? What about magazines that you that are that are not explicitly pornographic? What about <laughs> These sickly, sappy, sweet Christian romance novels. Did did I say that? I think I did. Well, that's between you and God. You and God need to deal with that and sort out we don't need to be one another's judge in these areas. Matters of dress and modesty. I want to read you a passage of Scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's after the other letters. Likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Now, I want the women to dress modestly. Some people still have a, a mindset that the the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, you have to dress up for church. Okay, if you ask my mother how you're supposed to dress for church, she knew exactly what the appropriate wear was. Southern Baptists in the South have a code for Sunday morning. And that's how I grew up. But what's to say, doesn't, doesn't that sound like Romans 14? Some people consider one day above another, another consider every day alike. Does dress have all that big of a significance in how you come to church? I don't think so. What about modesty? Is modesty an absolute term or a relative term? In other words, does modesty have an absolute cultural standard? Okay, if your skirt is this long and your neckline is this high, you're modest. If it alters, you're not modest any longer. Is that relative or absolute? It's relative. It changes with the culture. It changes with the time. It changes with the people. Modest is what is defined as appropriate within the context of your culture. There was a time in this country when if you saw a woman's ankles, men would go gaga. Okay, that's the, we're, we've seen so many ankles now, it no longer has an impact. The culture has changed. When we start talking about dress, we have to be very careful about how we define those terms, because... Where I first had my eyes open in this respect was watching missionary film strips at missionary conference. I specifically remember the occasion when it dawned on me something far bigger than the missionary scene I was watching. Jim Sunda from the interior of Irian Jaya in the Balian Valley had brought pictures of the revival among the Donnie tribespeople, and he was showing slides, and up on the screen came a slide of a Sunday morning worship service in a Donnie village, and the shot was from the back of the room, so you could see the room, and you could see the elders getting ready to serve communion, which by the way consisted of sweet potato as the bread, and I forget what they were using for the juice, but they didn't eat, they didn't even have the elements that we know. They were getting ready to serve communion. They were standing like this facing the the communion table so you could see their body in profile. Their bottoms were bare. The elders were standing at the communion table wearing nothing but a gourd attached with a string. And all the women were topless, wearing only a grass skirt. And that was Sunday morning worship in the Balin. Now, Jim said, because some of us guys had to ask, what happens if their gourd ever falls off? And Jim said, you better not laugh, or you better be running." Because that is an embarrassment worthy of fighting over. Don't make fun of a guy that loses his gourd. (laughs) My point is, they had a culture of modesty. And that culture meant that gourd had better be in place. And a woman would never think of coming to church without the grass skirt. That was their culture of modesty. And yet to be topless and to be completely naked as a male except for this gourd was not considered inappropriate in a worship service at communion time. There was no sexual energy going around the room. Their eyes were focused on Jesus. We must approach these issues with a sense of understanding of a bigger picture. And I want to make my final point here, which is just really so important. It's really another sermon, but I'm just going to squeak it in here. Guys, I've how many times I've heard, I can't believe they wear that to church because it makes us men lust. That is a mindset that comes out of the Garden of Eden when Adam said, the woman that you made for me gave me this fruit. She made me do it. And and we all can hear that and say, you know what? That guy's wimping out. That's wrong. If you have a problem with lust, can I tell you something? You have a problem with lust. It's not the woman's fault. If you say that a woman makes you lust, you have more of a Muslim mind than a Christian mind. The Muslim believes that the women are responsible for their lustful thoughts, and so they cover them with burkas, head-to-toe coverings, dowdy dress, hides their figure, does everything possible to conceal... Because the men know if they get lustful and sinful, it's that woman you made for me, it's her fault. And I want to say to you guys, if you're struggling with lust, I don't care what a woman's wearing or not wearing, if you are lusting, you have the problem. You know, ladies and men both, you know if you're dressing to attract sexual attention. You know that. And all you have to ask yourself is, when I get up in the morning to get dressed, and by the way, I never, stand, I never go into the bathroom to get dressed and think to myself, how dowdy and unattractive can I make myself today? <clears throat> that never crosses my mind. I want to look as best I can for the occasion that's appropriate in the context. I, really, I strive for that. You may not believe that, but I actually do. And I can't imagine anybody getting up in the morning and saying, how unattractive can I possibly be? How dowdy can I make myself look? How can I hide the fact that I'm a man or a woman? How can I make that go away like we're all sexless here? We don't do that. But if you can take Jesus with you to buy your clothes and invite him into the closet when you pick them out to put them on, and you and Jesus are happy with them, then you're fine. You're fine. And if you're not fine, you know what? I can pray and the Holy Spirit can talk to you about what needs to change. That's not my business. To his own master, He stands or falls. That's between you and God. And if you're a fellow and you say, you know, I have trouble worshiping because... Uh, I see these women and, and the way they're dressed, man, they just take my mind off of it. i got news for you. You have a problem. You need to deal with it. It's not because of what you see at church. It's because of what you're watching other places. It's where your mind is. It's what you're filling yourself with. You have a problem. You need to deal with it. You need to get before God and ask his help. We talk about politics and government. Oh, my goodness. Are we in a mess right now? But you know what? We're going to get the president that God wants us to have. And you know what? We're going to heaven. I don't care what we have to go through to get there. We're going to heaven. And I don't know how this election is going to turn out. Well, actually, I've got a pretty good idea. But we're going to heaven. God's on the throne. You need to go to the polls and vote your conviction. You need to get before God and pray about it and do what God tells you to do. But this should never divide saints. Politics should never be a dividing theme. Again, there are some areas I just can't go. You know, I... Well, I won't go there. I was reading the issues and what the candidates think about the issues. And, and whatever happens to the economy and whatever happens to foreign policy and whatever happens to anything else, there's some places I just cannot go. The, the, there are, to me, some areas of moral absolute in my heart that I just have to, I have to confront and face and say, this is the watershed for me. This is, this is my dividing line. I have to stop here. But I recognize there are people who are on all sides of the fence who see other crucial issues, who see other things that are very significant to them. And they have strong feelings. It should never divide believers. Some people think, oh, if they dress up for Halloween, they're sinning, all that demon worship. Once again, friends, does Halloween have a strange and weird heritage? Yes, it does. And I tell you what, I've never seen Halloween so gotten into like people get into it around here. Man, and some of it is just hideous. But does that mean that every little child that goes out trick-or-treating is sinning or his parents are sinning? It does not. It does not. You know, if you have an Easter egg hunt, are you worshiping the god of Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar, and the sex symbols of spring fertility? Or are you just having an Easter egg hunt as a seven-year-old? Come on. Those are matters between you and God. They're not matters to make the church in division over because the Bible does not give us specific instruction on those things. Well, as I said, next week we're going to look at how do I figure this stuff out for myself if I just have me and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God? How do I figure it out? That's where we're going to go. But meanwhile, my encouragement as I started out by saying don't let your freedom or your convictions on matters of opinion and everything I've talked about this morning fits that category. Don't let that divide you as one believer from another. Don't allow that to get in the way of your fellowship in Jesus Christ. And please don't let your feelings and attitudes about other things be a roadblock or a barrier to someone outside the faith coming to know Jesus Christ. You know... I want people to come here and hear the gospel. I I don't care what they're doing. Lost people are lost people. And I don't want them to see the church as, as a place that has all these rules and regulations and requirements about lottery tickets and bowling leagues and on and on it goes. Because those are not issues that should ever keep someone from Christ. And we need to be careful that we don't put that stumbling block in the way. Father, open our minds and our understanding. Give us the grace to perceive the truth. Help us to grow up in Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to be our our leader and our guide. That we might walk in love. Not condemning, not judging. Not adding to the gospel all kinds of trappings that ultimately frustrate and discourage people from growing in Christ, but to be a people whose hearts and minds are committed to you, following you with all of our heart and allowing the Holy Spirit to discipline and train us according to his purposes. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.